Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Bartley, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hi, it's uh, Bruce here. Hi, Bruce. Good to talk to you. So we're still waiting on Mark Badeau, so we'll get into this evening's news and notes and bring Mark in when he calls in. So for folks wanting to participate, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. The next episode in two Fridays' time, Friday, February 20th at 8 p.m. Pacific, will be an Outstanding Questions show. I think we've done two or three of these in the past, but with the number of topics that have been discussed in the past four or five Biota Lives, it seems uh, appropriate that we have an outstanding question show just to decompress and also take questions from the listening audience. So as you've listened in over uh, the recent Biota Lives, even the Biota Lives stretching back into last year, and if you have any outstanding questions, please send them to me, tom at nobelite.com, and I will uh, assemble together a, a group of experts to discuss them per the previous outstanding questions shows. The legacy with regards to these shows tends to be that... Uh, Two or three topics get hotly debated and other ones are uh, discussed with relative calmness. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the listening audience provides. From March 1st to March 18th, I will be in Australia, which means no biotalyzed over this period. However, on March 27th at 8pm Pacific, William R. Buckley talking about artificial life on an atomic level. And uh, William R. Buckley was one of the folks that approached me in Dick Gordon or after Dick Gordon's presentation in Second Life. And shout out to Dick Gordon, possibly in Second Life, because I know he's listening in this evening. So I was on Skype uh, last Friday, and Justin Lyon, who is still in Iraq, was on Skype as well. And he and I had a really fascinating chat with regards to the current situation in Iraq and also uh, the potential and possibilities that Justin is seeing there currently. And obviously, because of the circumstances, hold it, I'll just see if I can bring in the... Hello, second caller. Hello, this is Mark Bedeau. Good to speak to you, Mark. So we're just going through some news and notes, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, get into this evening's topic, talking to you. But I was just saying, I'm not sure if you've met Justin Lyon, but I was uh, chatting with him last Friday evening. He's currently based in Iraq, and he had some very interesting feedback uh, that he's getting both setting up universities in Iraq and also some work that he's doing with the Iraqi government currently. And whilst, I, whilst obviously the circumstances in Iraq are very serious, the point that Justin makes is that the uh, government in Iraq is currently very um, math and science and engineering heavy in terms of their backgrounds. I know Justin is close with the Deputy Prime Minister who has background in um, mathematical simulation from Sussex University, I believe, um, so a highly educated group of uh, engineers and like-minded folk that are currently forming the Iraqi government. And Justin had a lot of positive stuff to say about what could come out of this. He is um, obviously consulting with them and giving them advice with regards to how to uh, adopt simulation at a government level, particularly with regards to proof and concept. But I hope to have Justin on uh, in a future bios live or certainly to do a recorded interview with him because his discussion uh, about the current situation in Iraq and also his experiences uh, setting up universities there are fascinating. So uh, for folks who've listened to, uh, to recent bios lives, obviously Darwin's birthday is coming up February 12th, which is very, very soon. Bruce, you're actually going to be in London for the festivities. 
indeed, and I'll be part of a half-day workshop at the Wellcome Trust that's sponsored by the Bartlett School and Rachel Armstrong. So a group of us were contacted this week by Phil Terry, who is gathering together 200,000 people on Facebook for Darwin's birthday. And what interests me about this, and also obviously running uh, I Am Darwin and getting video submissions associated with I Am Darwin, is that there is a huge upswell of kind of popular energy and, and popular support. And what I find fascinating, particularly with regards to my own work in the I Am Darwin project, is just the, you know, the breadth of interests of people submitting videos. Certainly, someone such as Phil Terry, and I know Bruce and uh, others have, have discussed this with me in the past, I mean, in terms of assembling 200,000 people that are interested in Darwin, can you imagine the, the energy that comes through that after, after the actual birthday celebrations die down, Bruce? Yeah, yeah it's a very positive uh, thing to do in the light of sort of a lot of the anti-science uh, sentiment here in the U.S. over the last eight years. And certainly what I've been saying to Phil is that we, I mean, the background with regards to biota is with regards to collaboration both within the artificial life community and also for folks outside the artificial life community. And that's my hope really with regards to the I Am Darwin website as well, that after a year, and I'm keeping the site open for all of this year, but a year's worth of submissions, we could turn the site over into some kind of forum or discussion to allow, um, you know, the MDs, the economists, the artificial life folk, obviously the paleobiologists, people such as Dick Gordon, I mean the kind of folk that we've already been able to gather together through the biota community plus a wide variety of other folk and also folk that obviously Phil Terry will be bringing in just to continue the discussion based on this uh, initial upswell support. Mark, as you're listening to this, what, what are your thoughts with regards to the potential? The potential for the I Am Darwin website or for Darwinism in general or... Darwinism in general, just the upsurge in support with regards to, I mean, for example, Phil Terry is gathering together 200,000 people through Facebook. And from that, I mean, obviously these people are in a wide variety of areas, a wide variety of interests. But in terms of collaboration, in terms of interesting discussion, I mean, obviously it just doesn't end at the end of Darwin's birthday. Yeah, I, I, well, I think uh, the whole thing is, is wonderful. It's, um, it's great to have this many people involved. Um, in any kind of an event like this, which is a positive one, and um, you know, helping to promote uh, science. The the thing that um, you know, the thing that mainly strikes me, my main thought about the attention that's given to Darwin's birthday, is that <clears throat> the main message I would want to add to the festivities is that while Darwin Darwinism is extremely important and um, absolutely fundamental in our understanding of life on Earth and uh, the big questions about life on Earth. There are other big questions about life on Earth that Darwinism does not answer, so that we do not have all of the answers, all of the, the answers to the big questions, even, in, even in, uh, in, in general principle terms, about how life, in particular, how life arose, and how life uh, evolved in the way in which it did to become uh, more and more complex, how the biosphere became more and more complex. Darwinism, no doubt, well, by Darwinism, I mean natural selection, the principle of natural selection, and that no doubt plays a role. But one of the very clear lessons from artificial life over the last 10 years, 15 years, throughout its whole really, history, is proof after proof that natural selection by itself, even when you add in other things like an indefinitely large genetic space, 
and um, coevolution and uh, the construction of the environment by the organisms still does not produce um, the kind of growth of complexity that you see in the biosphere, or and nor do similar kinds of principles explain how life originated. So the message that I want to give is that Bob Darwin was extremely important in showing how uh, science can explain fundamental patterns in biology. By no means is it over. There are still big questions that are open and extremely interesting ones. And in fact, um, uh, so, so when you have the debate between Darwinists and creationists and the creationists or intelligent design people point out that there are gaps in the, in the evolution, in sort of in the bio, current biology account of various aspects of life, they are right. And of course, the answer is not that there should be some creationist answer to fill that gap, but rather we shouldn't pretend that Darwin, in principle, supplied all the answers, because it's just not true. And talking about positive energy and reinforcement, are you, are you familiar with the Greytham groups at all, Mark? Greytham, no. Bruce, can you give an introduction to, to Greytham for Mark? Yeah, the um, Greytham groups were started in Boston and Cambridge, I think about four or five years ago, and it's basically a homebrew club for artificial life developers, and they tend to have a monthly meeting. The one here in the Bay Area is at SRI International in the Artificial Intelligence Lab, and it allows people to show, uh, hobbyists to show artificial life work they're doing, but also academics to come and, and show some of their work and writers and a lot of other kinds of people. So it's actually you know, in the great tradition of, of homebrew clubs. And it's, uh, I think there's four or five, uh, four or five chapters around the world now, and it's kind of uh, revivifying if you'll forgive the phrase, uh, the artificial life hobbyist uh, community and connecting them in with the academic community. Uh-huh. Interesting. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, part, part of the, the way I would underscore my <laughs> the, uh, previous point, the point I'm trying to make, is that there are lots of very profound, open questions still to, to find answers for. And I think artificial life is exactly the, the right set of uh, tools. In particular, I'm thinking here of soft artificial life, making computer simulations. Um, to investigate these these big questions, sort of Darwin scale questions, along with the uh, you know the origin and evolution of species, there's fundamental questions like the origin of life, or why uh, whether there's some kind of arrow of complexity inherent in evolution. These are these are questions which we still don't know the answers to, but a life is a, a perfect way to learn about them, make progress. You were certainly speaking to the choir, Mark, with regards to uh, both Bruce and myself and also with regards to listener base to buy it live because I think that's a, a kind of continuing theme throughout these uh, internet radio shows. So, yeah, certainly an amen from uh, from this part of the choir. So some Greytham-related news. I have to send apologies to Scott Davis um, because I accidentally said Scott Schaefer with regards to uh, the presentation of Bubble Pond in the Bay Area. Al Lundell has once again created two fantastic videos. Were you at the Greytham Silicon Valley meeting, Bruce? Sorry, I missed that one. There's about, I would say, two and a half hours worth of video online. I think Steve's presentation in particular left me questioning some of the aspects to it. I found it actually quite challenging, but it was wonderful to see Scott Davis give a presentation of stuff. If you talk about hobbyists that have been inspired by seeing artificial life academics and hobbyists talk at Greytham meetings. I mean, Scott Davis is the, is the poster child to that. And also Greytham Boston 
had uh, Justin Weirafel, who's a postdoctoral fellow at New England Complexity System Institute and Harvard Medical School on Monday night. And I guess the flavor of the Boston uh, Grayson meetings tends to be slightly more academic, but there's a, there's a good group of hobbyists there. Bruce uh, has had the benefit of attending almost all the uh, Grey Thumbs at one time or another, bar perhaps Second Life and, and Ben Lux, haven't you, Bruce? That's right. I've been to the London group as well. Yeah, they sound, they sound wonderful. I look forward to when I uh, you know, am, <clears throat> have a chance to be at one. Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't been invited to talk yet, Mark, because certainly um, the feedback from the community is that, uh, you know, you, your work to date has been very inspirational for a, for a number of people, and I'm sure the various Gratham organizers are currently clamoring to get your email address in order to invite you to speak to at all of them. And I know you do a bit of traveling as well, so you're probably ideally suited to uh, drop into one or more of the of the Greythums as they're held worldwide. Yeah, I was just in London a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be in San Francisco in uh, two weeks, etc. So yeah, I get around. That would be fun. That would be fun. So Dick Gordon's book, Divine Action and Natural Selection, I had the sad news today that unfortunately only review copies are being sent out to Divine Action and Natural Selection, so I won't be able to offer a couple on Biota Live for uh, folks who want to contribute specific submissions, but. My sense is that maybe Mark or someone associated with the Artificial Life Journal will be receiving a copy of Divine Action and Natural Selection in the near future for the purposes of review. I am, however, going to be published in a book called Nature Inspired Informatics, which will be out relatively shortly as well, and I'm going to fight tooth and nail to get promotional copies for Bios Live of that book because I think it's a, a fascinating surveying and it would be nice to have someone like Larry Yeager uh, back on to talk through a, a number of the chapters. And our guest this evening is obviously Mark Bordeaux, who appeared on a Biota interview a couple of years ago. And Mark has a, a number of fascinating uh, projects and involvement. So I think we should probably start, Mark, with your book that has just been released, Protocells, Bridging Non-Living and Living Matter, with the view that you're really speaking to the choir in terms of artificial life, enthusiasts, academics, philosophers, muses. Would you like to give an introduction to the book? I'd be delighted to. <clears throat> we think of the book, so this book was done in collaboration with uh, a large group of people. Um, uh, one of the, the most important person was Steen Rasmussen, and there were a handful of others, um, and it, it took about four years to, to pull together. It grew out of the conviction on our part um, that wet artificial life was um, coming to the fore, and it was time to have wet artificial life. So we're now, I'm now thinking back in about the year 2000 um, at the uh, 7th Artificial Life Conference in Portland, Oregon, and I was talking with Steen and some other people at that point, and that point, at that point, at the, after that conference, we thought that the simulations and sort of the soft artificial life side of things, which I had been heavily involved in uh, up to that point, were now mature enough that we could try to make some of these things uh, uh, real in the laboratory, and so we decided to uh, work on finding a way to um, push the wet artificial life agenda. And this involved various things involving going to Italy for four years and starting the company Protolife, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later on too. But also putting together, uh, we wanted to put together a resource on 
wet artificial life. So what I mean by wet artificial life is attempts to make living systems in the laboratory from scratch. So this is different from synthetic biology or Craig Venter's effort to make an artificial cell where you start with an existing living cell, like a bacterium, and then modify it by maybe putting in a synthetic genome or something. We're talking about starting from scratch and building things that deserve to be alive, even called alive, even though they might be uh, different in important ways from any you know, uh, familiar form of life that naturally exists. <clears throat> anyway, so the book is uh, an anthology which covers all of the main approaches to trying to make experimental approaches, uh, theoretical approaches, and computational simulations, trying to uh, work on making new forms of life in the laboratory from scratch. Um, so there are chapters from all of the main uh, research groups and chapters about all of the main avenues, uh, strategies being pursued. There, there's a, a, a set of chapters on the main components in the artificial cell, such as the membranes and the genetics and the uh, metabolism. And then there's also another section of chapters on the bigger picture, like some, a little bit about, not very much, but a little bit about the commercial applications, a little bit about um, connections with um, origin of life, a little bit about the social and ethical implications. So we think of it as the Bible of wet artificial life. And um, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's supposed to, it attempts to be a pretty comprehensive survey, um, and there's a lot of uh, technical detail, and also a significant amount of uh, higher level uh, vision. Since it's written, different chapters written by different people, and all, uh, you know, many, all of the key, virtually all of the key figures in the field have some say in the book. Um, so you really get an overview of the diversity of, of work and approaches. And we're, we're really excited about it. We're looking forward to starting to have a chance to teach courses based on the book, um, et cetera. Terrific. And certainly the number one question that we receive with regards to wet artificial life is from soft or hard artificial life developers that just want to know more about what the particular vision of wet artificial life is and also how hard or soft artificial life developers can move their developments into wet artificial life. Could you talk to those two particular points, please? Yeah. Um, the, so one of the, the key ways that bringing wet artificial life in can help, I think, is that these systems are um, they're concrete physical systems, and they have an, a, you know, an existence in in um, physical reality, which is uh, completely unlike a computer simulation, for example, or even a computer system, a soft, you know, IT system that's just, that's uh, on a given computer or on a on a IT network of some kind. So, so <clears throat> it's much more familiar kind of life. Um, it's wet artificial life, and so that itself is a kind of reality check or a kind of um, uh, if you can make life that is wet artificial life, it enables you to, you're making a kind of life which is much more uh, close because it is wet to natural forms of life. And so you have a chance to, to uh, it kind of helpfully triangulates what life is 
because um, it's, it's closer to natural forms of life. Second issue is that the fact that these systems are embodied chemically and physically is uh, makes a difference. The, the, one of the things we're investigating is the way in which the very embodiment process itself can solve certain problems, um, can do uh, computational work, for example, for you, so you get certain kinds of computational effects for free because of the way they're built. And in general, the, the idea of making a, a machine or something machine-like in wet chemistry is an interesting intellectual task because the, the nature of the machine, because it's wet and because everything is mixed together, is intrinsically different. So it's intellectually very um, exciting and rich. Um, a third point is that, in fact, chem uh, simulations, for example, traditional computer simulations, although maybe ones that are more realistic than many of the, the early artificial life simulations, but anyway, computer simulations play an important role in developing this, uh, you know, in making the wet artificial life story uh, work. A lot of wet artificial life, what I would call wet artificial life, actually grew out of work done by, that's uh, being done by uh, chemists and biochemists, um, people who are a lot of more interested in the origin of life and they're doing experimental work that's, uh, you know, trying to make new kinds of life in the laboratory out of a, a prior interest in the origin of life. And what um, the soft artificial life, I think, can bring is that that earlier uh, group of people who are working in wet artificial life out of origin of life, for example, or astrobiology, they um, tend to work in a very experimentally driven way. They, they, they roll up their sleeves and start mixing chemicals and look under the microscope and see what's there. And that's all fine, but what's missing is a, often is a more um, a theoretical picture or a theoretical vision of what life is and how to put it together. And that's the kind of vision that is often embodied in these computer simulations. And so having computer simulations play a, an active role in the uh, um, kind of a, the interplay, have, have computer simulations be in actively uh, interplaying with experimental work. So there's a kind of feedback. You do a simulation, and then that suggests some new kinds of experiments to do, and you do those experiments, and then those suggest how you should change your simulation or make some new simulation, and going back and forth. If you can start to have that happening, which you, well, first of all, you can start that, that kind of thing does now, is starting to happen. There's an interaction between simulation work and experimental work in the wet artificial life field. Not so much in the traditional wet, in the traditional uh, attempts to make life in the laboratory, which grow out of origin of life or astrobiology, but more so from this, uh, the, the people that are coming to it from artificial life because of their history of doing these simulations. And so this, this, this connection between simulations and experiments gives you a kind of, um, you can kind of leverage uh, and make progress in the same way in which, say, you know, traditional natural sciences like physics have made progress by the interplay between experiment and theory. In this case, the simulations are like theory. The theories are complicated enough that you can't, uh, you know, uh, work them out mathematically. You have to work them out with a computer, but they still, but forming the theories and using the theories to inform and suggest experiments, and then using those experiments to revise and modify your theories, 
was very, very powerful in natural science. Um, and it's now starting to happen in wet artificial life. And the simulation crowd plays a key role in this. With regard to the hard artificial life people, there are a couple ways in which they are um, playing a role. One is that hard, there's a group of people uh, in hard artificial life who are focusing, are very interested in this whole embodiment question that I rose a minute ago. They're, they've been, uh, so I'm thinking of people like Rolf Pfeiffer in Switzerland who are um, uh, kind of growing out of the, the work that uh, Rod Brooks did many years ago trying to show how you can, um, you know, the right kinds of materials and the right kinds of uh, physiology can perform, so to speak, computational work for free in hard artificial life. And so now we're trying to do the same kind of thing I was saying in wet artificial life, even though some of the principles are different because the machines are wet, the machines are fluid, the parts are not fixed spatially as they are in a hard uh, uh, device. And... Um, um, but in a week, but, but wet artificial life can learn a lot from that whole embodiment, embodied robotics uh, movement. And then um, in addition to that, these robots, people are working on making them smaller and smaller and smaller and having their, uh, their interested in behavior, of, a lot of interest now in behavior, in hard artificial life, in behavior of uh, swarms of robots, as you no doubt know. And some of these swarms are macroscopic, but others are, are getting more and more microscopic. And so... I think because of this, hard artificial life and wet artificial life are going to start to merge, and you already see other versions of this merger starting because people are, you know, making robots that have chips with, uh, you know, some kind of bacteria or some kind of living, you know, wet form of life um, interacting in the chip. Um, so hard and wet are already fusions of hard and wet are already happening um, uh, at the macroscopic scale, too. So those are, those are some of the ways. I guess the, the, the bottom line of all this is that I, I think that I think of soft and wet and hard artificial life as being, in principle, fundamentally different uh, because the synthetic methods they're using are different. You know, one is soft artificial life is making lifelike systems in computer simulations or computer systems. Hard artificial life is making lifelike systems out of silicon and steel and plastic. And then wet artificial life is making them out of the sort of things you find in a supply cabinet in a, in a chemistry department, you know, amphiphiles and um, nucleic acids and things like that. Um, but, but I think the boundaries are starting to blur, and I think that I'm sure they will just blur more and more as time goes on. So that the, the, the bigger picture that I have is... is captured in this concept of living technology. And this, that means technology or man-made systems that have the fundamental properties and enjoy the powers, the great powers of the living systems. Um, this would include, well, include any form of artificial life as well as um, other kinds of you know, collective intelligence and um, adaptive, adaptive processes. And I think that these are... Um, as I said, I think progress in every one of these things is sort of marginally at the boundaries helping the others. So in general, I think everyone will, um, everyone will, all of these sides will flourish. I do foresee in the next 10 years that the wet artificial life wing, which historically, the last time we talked, um, you know, that I talked on, uh, on one of these, uh, a broadcast like this, 
I'm sure I was emphasizing the fact that was true that wet artificial life is is um, a smaller, a much smaller group just compared by their numbers to the other at conferences. And this was still true at Alife 11, the last conference uh, six months ago. But it was interesting that the and, and I thought telling that the the work that was voted by the delegates at Alife 11 to be the most interesting work presented was one of the handful of works in wet artificial life. So I think the whole community is getting more and more interested in this and realizing that um, it's time now to actively try to build these bridges that I was alluding to earlier. Certainly, certainly. Bruce, I know you've read Proto-Souls. Do you have any questions for Mark with regards to the book? Gosh, it's... Um it's just a magnificent book, and I'm only partway through some of the chapters. And I just want to thank you, Mark, for bringing this to us. It's in my own PhD uh, work. It's it was couldn't have been better timed. Thank you, Bruce. So, Mark, last time you were on, you you talked a little bit about Proto Life, your company. It was more than two years ago that we last had you on a Biota podcast. What developments has Proto Life made over these over this time? I forget exactly where we were. So let me just tell you where we are now, and, and you can probably help me make the right kind of contrast from before if that's useful. Um, we were created because we raised a lot of money in Europe to do a project on creating the foundations of uh, sort of fundamental technology that will be used to make wet artificial life. Our, pro our goal wasn't to make wet artificial life, but it was to make the technology that would enable people to make wet artificial life. Fertilize part of that, Fertilize is a company, a small startup company, and its part of it was to develop technology for <clears throat> um, a new kind of evolutionary algorithm that would enable you to use high throughput experimentation in the laboratory to very efficiently uh, discover and optimize complicated chemical systems. By complicated chemical systems, I mean systems that have a lot of different uh, parameters that you can independently vary, and ones in which the parameters interact synergistically, so you can't um, separately tune the parameters. You have to try to tune the whole system at once. In other words, the system has emergent, has, is full of emergent properties. Um, protocells would be one good example of this. This kind of synergy and complexity is a hallmark of living systems. Um, wet living systems, soft living systems, hard living systems. And uh, so we created this in order to help people make uh, protocells. But also this technology, you know, protolize the company, we have to be, uh, you have a bottom line, we have to be successful today. And before there are artificial cells, we, um, you know, this technology still can be useful in any place where people are trying to make, trying to either discover or optimize complicated chemical systems. And so we've been um, chopping this technology. So the technology works. We've proved it in a number of cases. We've, we've used this technology in our own laboratory. We had a laboratory in, in, uh, in Italy, in Venice, Italy. And we used this technology to do various uh, artificial cell type projects, but also to do more practical projects, such as um, discover a whole dozens of new um, uh, liposomal formulations of drugs uh, we discovered a, um, uh, a bunch of new uh, uh, um, supermixes, biotechnology supermixes, 
that you can use to uh, express protein, cell-free um, protein expression kits. Um, so we've discovered a bunch of uh, you know uh, new, much more efficient, cheaper ways of um, um, building, uh, creating cell-free ex protein expression kits. Um, we also use this to discover new, uh, very efficiently discover new, complicated, um, synergistic, beneficial interactions among existing drugs. So you can take combination therapies that uh, sometimes have, uh, well, it turns out certain combination drugs, um, like generic drugs, for example, when you put them together, they have unpredictable consequences, and cases of unpredictable consequences can be very beneficial. We showed that that's a, that's a very hard problem to solve. And the general way in which people are solving the problem of discovering and optimizing complicated chemical systems, these emergent chemical systems, is with brute force search. And that's obviously really expensive. So our, our advantage is that we can make these searches so efficient that um, it becomes possible to uh, do projects that were just uh, impossible before. So at this stage in prototype, what we're doing is simply writing up these results, we're actually having a hard time selling this, getting paying customers because we're, we feel like we're just ahead of the wave. You know, I was talking with, I talk with people in pharma or in biotech or uh, uh, those are the main fields we've been looking at so far, Some, somewhat to some extent in the materials industry, you know, the, the industry that makes new materials. All of the, in all of these cases, they're dealing with chemical systems that are complicated, highly synergistic, but they just are not used to imagining that the kind of problem we can solve can be solved, and so they're not, uh, they're not really receptive, or they haven't been receptive at this point. So we, just, we feel like we're ahead of the wave, and we're now just, the company is waiting for the wave to catch up. So we're in the process of writing up these results I was telling you about, um, and publishing them, and um, maybe in a couple of years, uh, you know, the business will actually take off. But right now, business is not, is not good for, the, for, for our company, because um, uh, I think people are just at this point. In my interpretation, people are used to doing things the old-fashioned way, and um, you know they just haven't learned that they really can do something different that was would have been impossible before. So we'll see. I, I'm I'm quite confident that someone's going to be doing this kind of thing in the next five years or so, or ten years. The kind of thing that we developed is, um, you know, if if we're if we don't end up entering the market, someone's going to do it, and um, and so maybe maybe Protolife will have a role to play in all this, but it's gonna I think it's gonna take a little while, a few years for this to kind of catch on. And in terms of pharmaceuticals, uh we've had it suffered on previously. He's at Lilly and I know another fellow in Southern California, although he didn't uh, venture which company he works for. And in terms of the search and the matching of proteins, my sense is that companies like Lilly already have internal uh, teams that are that are doing aspects of what you've described. So I think um, with regards to the receipt of, of large-scale pharmaceuticals, they've learned at least some of the improved search uh, components that artificial life offers. Are, are you tracking folk that are working in these kind of uh, pharmaceutical companies that are doing similar sorts of things? Yeah, we, we are. And uh, another place that uh, there are these internal teams is in um, big big chemical companies like Mobile. They have Mobile, Exxon Mobile has a team that does this just in-house. Uh, Dow Chemical Corporation has a team that does this kind of thing in-house. And I'm not, uh, I, I know Pharma has, they have massive screening facilities, of course. In Pharma, 
the traditional farmer screening, um, and also traditional, this includes biotechs like Amgen, um, the, the kind of screening they do doesn't actually work so well with our method because it's, what they do is make huge libraries of compounds, and then they can actually screen those libraries. These, these libraries have millions of compounds, literally a few million, uh, like maybe four. And um, they can screen the whole library in a matter of a few weeks. And so if they can screen the whole library in a few weeks, there's no real advantage for them to work with us. Because what we can do, the whole point of our photolyze technology is that when you have a huge search space and you don't want to exhaustively search the whole space, because that will take much too long, what you can do is work with us and we will sample the space in a very intelligent way so you can find the hotspot really quickly by only looking at some fraction of, you know, less than 1% of the whole search space. But if it's not expensive to search the whole space, um, because you can do it all in two weeks, then who cares? You know, why would you want to work with us? So, and, and pharma can do this because they have these pre-existing libraries of small molecules, um, and, uh, or sometimes even libraries of large molecules. What, what works where we work better is if you have a larger experimental space and you don't have a library built up in advance, but what you do is synthesize on demand. You know, you sample the space and you... You would, it's as if you were synthesizing the compounds only because you decided to check that particular possibility. And this makes sense if you're dealing with a huge space of chemical possibilities and it's simply not um, economically feasible to make all the compounds in this abstract space that you've defined. And what you want to do is by, by creating as many of, by making as few of those substances as possible the goal is to find, you know, the best substances, best relative to whatever, you know, asset you're using, whatever test, whatever goal you have in mind. Um, so that's to say, the point I'm making here is that the way most screening is done in pharma right now, it's, it's a brute force approach, and uh, we're not so, uh, you know, they don't, they don't really need us. There's a lot of modeling, of course, that goes on in pharma, um, and this is maybe now a little bit more closely related to what, what we're doing. But in, in our approach, there's a, there's a heavy modeling component, but it's not the kind of model that traditional pharma makes. In traditional uh, pharma models of um, small molecules, for example, these are what are called uh, structure activity models or sometimes Q-star models. So what you, the way those work is you have a, a primitive model of a, of a chemical entity, a molecule, and then you can add add bits and pieces to the molecule or take bits and pieces away, and then you want to, um, uh, the model predicts some global property that you're interested in, you know, solubility or pharmacological activity or something like that. Um, so that, when you can do that, great. But in many cases, when you're dealing with complicated chemical systems, uh, including the kinds that, that pharma deals with, we simply don't understand the chemical first principles that are relevant well enough to build those expert models, to build those structure activity models. And so, um, and so when I was talking with uh, the guy who's in charge of uh, research at Amgen uh, six months ago, he was saying that, you know, when they think of the vast number of possible compounds they could synthesize and they haven't synthesized and never will get around to synthesizing, it's just, um, you know, mind-boggling. They don't even know where to begin. 
look, so what happens is people have a certain hunch, some smart chemist has a hunch that a certain kind of molecule will be useful, and so they go and make some of that, and they make variants of that molecule. And so a little region in chemical space gets, uh, gets filled out, and then they can screen in that region. But as you can maybe get a sense, it's, it's very ad hoc. It's, it's, uh, it's a black art, um, and a lot of it depends on the intuitions of the chemists involved, and sometimes those can be lucky, but if you want to get beyond intuition and try to have it be based more on, uh, uh, you know, have the exploration of these huge spaces be based on um, empirical results, you know, sort of sound science, then that's, that's where our technology can, can be helpful. And you mentioned Craig Ventner briefly, and obviously he's been doing a lot of publicity in the past couple of years. You've already touched on your own feeling with regards to his particular um, description of wet artificial life. But do you think there's a danger that Ventner's work and certainly the publicity that he's creating will uh, change the term artificial life, wet artificial life, but also artificial life in general? And how do those of us who are developing artificial life, be it soft, hard, or wet, how do we perturb the, the meaning back to its true original meaning? I think Venter will be a big plus to the artificial life community on balance. I mean, there'll be give and take of the sort that you're alluding to, Tom, but I think he'll be, I think he'll be a, a big benefit because he will, um, well, Venter in particular, but synthetic biology in general, has already made a big splash. Um, lots of people know about it. It's appearing in you know, discussed in, and uh, published in the Science and Nature and journals like that regularly. So it's got a lot of attention. And, you know, for example, there's a lot of attention about the, the social and ethical implications of synthetic biology. Inventors played a big role in all of this because he's great at drawing attention to his work and to the projects that he's involved in. You know, he's really a master at that. And um, I think that when he creates his attention, he'll bring new people in. And then when people come in, they'll, they will look around and they'll notice that Venter's approach and indeed the synthetic, the traditional synthetic biology approach is this kind of top-down approach where you start with existing forms of life and modify them. And the bottom-up approach is a natural partner, you know, a natural alternative method of doing a similar kind of thing or inspired by similar kinds of goals and potentially interacting in a, in a positive, you know, uh, there could be collaboration. And I think people will, it'll just make many more people know about the wet artificial life bottom-up approach, and then that will also make more people know about the soft artificial life. And I think that what you'll hear is, um, uh, well, what I would hope would happen is that terms like artificial life will start more and more to be qualified by wet art, as wet artificial life, soft artificial life, hard artificial life in the way in which we have been in our conversation tonight. And um, Venture will cause many more people to be using these terms, and then they will notice that there are these distinctions that you want to make. And even Venture is interested in top-down wet artificial life specifically. I think what you, you hook people in these, with these, uh, in any one of these ways They'll, they'll just notice, a lot of people will notice the other similar issues like um, bottom-up wet artificial life or like uh, soft artificial life. 
and they'll just bring new people to the field. That's that's my that's why I think he's going to be a big a big plus um, in a net you know sort of net net. He'll be a edger will be a big plus for tradition for traditional artificial life. Also, the fact that he's you know he's doing this as a commercial venture, so there's a commercial interest, there's money involved, and that brings itself a kind of attention. It brings a kind of um, focused uh, hard work, which can I think only be to the benefit of um, the general field. I think that because I'm sure that you know there'll be more companies like Protolife that will grow up out of the artificial life. Um, you know what artificial life has to contribute in this area. There'll be natural, many commercial spin-offs, I think. So I think that's also good for artificial life. If there can, you know, if we can show uh, the larger world that there are some, you know, there's uh, uh, if someone can make money based on the sort of work you've been doing, that's a kind of credibility that lends a kind of credibility to the work that you've done because, you know, it's got to be, it has to have some foundation. It's a kind of a reality check. So I'm, I'm, I, I really embrace what Venture has done and uh, I haven't met him myself, but I look forward to it. And I think, uh, you know, I'm following with great interest stuff he's doing, even though I think that the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the orientation that traditional artificial life brings to these same questions is I, I, personally think it's deeper and broader than just focusing on, um, you know, making an artificial genome like he is, but I'd say more power to him, more power to him. I think it'll just help us all. It'll bring more people to biota.org, I think, ultimately. Well, I think that's a very positive account. If I can play the devil's advocate, certainly as a soft artificial life developer, and this has been something that's been discussed in the community, the launch of Will Wright's Spore was greeted with similar hope. My concern with regards to Ventner's publicity is that it puts set dates with regards to certain deliverables which haven't actually been met. And the kind of uh, media hysteria that went into a lot of Ventner's press releases towards the end of last year or leading up to the end of last year put, you know, lowered the wind in a number of sales with regards to the potential of this kind of technology. Certainly my own experience with regards to Spore was that it was so tightly branded, as all of Ventnor's work is as well, that it made it impossible for uh, you know soft artificial life uh, developers, even folks who were doing stuff that spoke more broadly, like what Bruce does, to actually engage in these kind of open discussions. And uh, my sense is that the branding component and also the potential for immense failure is two things which aren't always positives in this regard. Bruce, do you want to talk a little bit about this as well? I've been in the field of virtual worlds and sort of before that virtual reality and through several uh, boom and bust waves. And I remember having a conversation with Chris Langton, who uh, we managed to get involved in our side of things, which was uh, avatars and virtual world cyberspaces. And at that time, he said... Um, he was sort of on the downslope of the artificial life interest of the early 90s, and he was uh, quite burned out by it. And I always, I always fear that kind of thing occurring. It certainly occurred for the avatar space in the late 90s, early 2000s, with all the companies going bankrupt. Um, and you know, it's it's good to set expectations. It's it's maybe a little bit less wise to set dates around them. But I think the interesting thing is how one can, creates a continuing movement 
and certainly you talk about virtual reality, you talk about avatars. I mean, I think the, the potential for artificial life is in some regard greater and in some regard more commercially applicable in a number of areas. But when someone is trying to rebrand a term specifically that has such a long kind of heritage and history and so many names connected with it, the difficulty, particularly in a kind of contemporary media age, is that people just associate the term artificial life now with, you know, the half a dozen or maybe a dozen major articles with regards to Ventnor's work that were published last year, as opposed to what you're doing with uh, Proto-Life Mark and what Bruce is doing with the Evo Grid, what we're trying to do collectively with Biota. And this is the problem with regards to these kind of individuals, you know, branding particular terms. In terms of a broader community, do you think we should all approach the media following Ventnor-related articles and say, we're also doing artificial life? How do you see us interacting with the media proactively to bring the message out to a broader audience? Uh, interesting question. I, I should say in general that the, the other issues you raised about branding and the, um, the you know, uh, the possibility of immense failure are, are, are good points to raise. I guess when I talk with the media, it's not usually, they're not calling me to specifically comment on Venter's thing. It's usually in a slightly broader context. I think it's useful to use those opportunities whenever possible to show people, you know, show the reporter, whoever you're talking with, the, the broader context in which someone like Venter's work fits. So, you know, you could explain that it's a top-down approach to making artificial life there is a bottom-up approach too. That's 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 another uh, complementary effort that's ha happening around the world. And um, you know, the top-down approach is easier. It'll be faster. It'll have results sooner in a way. Uh, but the bottom-up approach, uh, uh, by contrast, has the potential to provide deeper insights because you have a bigger playing field. You know, you won't be constrained by the historical contingencies of of actual life in a way that uh, the venture will be. You know, working with mycoplasma genitalium, for example, as they've chosen to do, uh, and that you know that decision went back to something like 1995. Um, that has set a lot of constraint on on what they've been able to do. It's made certain things easier, but it's also made certain things harder because it's such a quirky little butt. And so the, you know, they had to spend an immense amount of effort dealing with those quirks. And as a result, the, the generality of the lessons that they learn will be limited, as opposed to someone who's just starting with raw materials and has a complete open canvas. So I would kind of um, bring in uh, these kinds of broader, this broader perspective and to help situate what Venter is doing and why it's important excuse me, why it's, why it's uh, interesting, but as a result, also shed light on the interest, the similar complementary, in some cases deeper interest in these uh, allied uh, harder projects like, like bottom-up when artificial life. And then it's natural to bring in, um, uh, you know, soft and hard artificial life when they become relevant too. I, you know, you may be right when you describe my comment as optimistic, and it might be that I'm, you know, it could be that I'm overly optimistic and, and uh, naive to some extent. I just don't know. You know, time will, uh, I might be proven wrong. Certainly. Um, we have another caller on the line, so I just want to bring in the uh, yeah. the other caller. Hello? Hi, Dick Gordon here. 
Dick, it's wonderful to have you on. Do you, okay. as you listen to this evening's discussion, do you have any questions for Mark? Uh, well, I sort of want to give a deja vu uh, comment. Uh, I was present at the first uh, press conference at which the synthesis of life was announced, uh, and that was Jim Daniele in the late 1960s. Uh, he had taken apart uh, amoeba into nuclei and uh, and uh, enucleated cells and then uh, put them back together and he got live cells and uh, uh, I, at that press conference uh, uh, Robert Bender and I also announced our work on computer tomography we only got local coverage this was in Buffalo New York and uh, Jim Daniel got Daniela got worldwide coverage and yet uh, I'm curious if Mark even knows of Jim Daniele's uh, work on synthesis of life. I don't. I don't. You don't? Okay. <laughs> now, Jim Daniele, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a, a, a good scientist, and he was the one uh, uh, who came up with the bilayer lipid model of the membrane. So he's, he's got his own place in the history of biology. Uh, but this is one of the things he did, and you might want to look at the... Uh, the rise and fall of this notion that he had uh, actually synthesized life uh, and compare it to what you guys are doing, what Ventner's doing, and perhaps don't worry about it, but get on with the work. Yeah, that's, I, I hear here on the last point, yeah. So I wanted to move on to the, the final topic with regards to the International Society of Artificial Life and the wide number of artificial life courses that are currently being taught internationally to both undergraduates and postgraduates. We had Larry Yeager on uh, a month ago, Mark, and we discussed this very topic. But I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts with regards to uh, all these courses worldwide and whether you think the International Society has any role to play with regards to firstly getting a degree of communication between the academics and potentially offering some kind of standardization to what a base artificial life course should look like. Uh, this is a great, great topic. I think there's a huge uh, opportunity here that the International Society for Artificial Life could um, help a lot with. Right now it's doing nothing in this area just through, uh, because basically because the society is not functioning very well, it's, kind of, it's, it's just not doing, it's not doing very much. Not, not that it's functioning poorly, it's just not doing very much. And I'm trying right now to, um, there's, a, there's a new election, there'll be a new board elected, and depending on, I'm hoping this new board will be much more active and can take, uh, take advantage of various opportunities. And one of them is this one. I myself am in the, of course, as many of you, many of you probably are, have, and uh, certainly many of the listeners have, um, you know, taught various courses on artificial life. And so I'm putting together these, these curriculum myself, and it would be fantastic to, have a centralized resource where we could go and look at what our colleagues are doing and, um, and then even take it further and start to standardize some, some bits of this uh, curriculum. In fact, another aspect of this that I would like to see is at the Artificial Life Conferences, I'd like to see tutorials in standard background in Artificial Life. There's some basic stuff that all of us should know to be, uh, to have sort of uh, um, considered as part of your literacy in artificial life. And this is particularly hard because it's an interdis interdisciplinary field. People are coming with different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of um, uh, expectations, knowing different kinds of literature, different kinds of techniques. And it would be really extremely useful to have a series of tutorials so that when new people come, they can go and get the background they need in these different areas. That's not being done. The society 
I hope would play a leadership role in that, um, and uh, that and among other things. So I, I think it's a great idea. It's not being done now, but I, I would like to help make that happen. I'm, I'm, in fact, who, who do you think is the, uh, who would be some of the best people to contact to, uh, who are in touch with these courses and know what's going on and would like to work on this? Well, I think Google gives you the best answers. I mean, the folks that I'm going to name are just people that I'm in direct correspondence with. But what I've found, I mean, even my hometown of Canberra, Australia now has an artificial life course being taught at the local military college. So I think what's fascinating is these courses are cropping up organically, and it's just a matter for us to really formulate a list and then begin the correspondence with all these people to get a sense initially of what they're teaching and then get a sense of what their immediate needs are in terms of standardization. Yeah. Yeah. Do you consider the International Society an industrial group as well as an academic organization, Mark? And with that in mind, do you think the current international economic downturn will impact artificial life research? I think that the International Society for Artificial Life could be an industry group. Right now, it's not an industry group, uh, partly because there's just so little, there's so little industry at all uh, that's really deeply connected with artificial life that I'm aware of. Do you of. think that's the case, actually? I mean, if you look at companies like iRobot, certainly my stuff is used by Apple and Intel. I know of other people's stuff that is used by you know, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, certainly within the soft artificial life sphere, it has been picked up by a number of industries, and as we've already noted, uh, you know, pharma companies seem to be using components of artificial life currently. I mean, do you think that's just a lacking in terms of the general surveying of the kind of companies that are using artificial life technology? I think that's probably largely it. I think that is it. I think, it's, I think the examples you raised are, are good examples and typical examples, so they're, they're a piece of some larger, in many cases, they'll be a piece of some larger company, and unless you happen to know what's going on in that company, you might, you might not know about that particular piece. But I think, again, this is a, the bottom line, and I say that there is an opportunity here that I would be delighted if the society uh, got involved in. With regard to the economic downturn globally that's going on right now, I don't think that's going to have a, I don't myself don't think that will have a big impact on artificial life research. So here I'm thinking uh, uh, not so much in companies, but in um, academic settings, mainly because I think most of that research is on the fringe. You know, the, the work um, that's in the, um, the mainstream where most of the money is going, I think you'll, it will suffer more. Sort of traditional central topics will suffer more because their research will be, um, you know, the amount of dollars that will be cut in those fields will be much larger. On the other hand, being on the fringes, uh, as artificial life is, means that it's always precarious to live out there. Um, and there's no doubt going to be less money on the fringes in terms of um, uh, the sort of port. In, um, uh, you know, as, as the economic times in general get bad, then money for special exotic projects also goes down. But but I guess my feeling is that most of it's being done on a shoestring right now, and I think that um, we'll probably be able to keep a lot of it going on a shoestring through this downturn. That's my personal guess. Dick, I know you called in late. Do you have any questions for Mark? Uh, well, I'm wondering if he's thinking beyond uh, the single cell. Uh, the uh, you know, organisms are uh, both symbiotic arrangements of bacteria, and uh, I mean, I, I, I tend to think of us as sort of uh, overgrown 
bacterial colonies, and I'm uh, wondering uh, if he's thinking about getting beyond the single cell. We have been thinking about this. I share your view about us and about life in general that um, symbiosis is extremely important. And um, we have been making, well, in the particular, I can tell you about the particular research group that, that we've been involved in. We have been, and I guess some of the work that I know that's closely related around the world, people like us have been making models, so soft artificial life models, of these collections of cells, trying to understand the, you know, how once we make protocells, they'll, they will work together in communities. But that's all at the model stage because we're so, you know, the, the protocells that we make right now are so, are, are so limited in capacity that they, they don't really try to well, think of any examples where they do I anything. suppose, but you don't think you can get some simple quorum sensing in? I think that that could be possible, and I know people are working on things like that. So I think that that, I think that, I guess I was just saying, I think this is a, this is a, there are a number of people who are interested in this, and there is some work happening, um, and I, I think it's a promising area. I think it's a promising area. The, part of the reason I'm hesitating a bit is that some of the work that I know has, of course, been done in, is being done in sort of synthetic biology, so it's taking existing organisms and modifying them to do things like um, act in communities in new kinds of ways, so to, for example, create Turing patterns. You know, two-dimensional. Yeah. Way. Uh, yeah. I guess the question. I, I. I don't know. Is there any evidence as to whether uh, uh, these interactions are uh, very primitive or later developments in the phylogeny of the bacteria? I don't know. I don't know personally. But I think that's a. I think that's an uh, interesting question. Um, okay. And I think that there are people who. Yeah. I'm just. I'm just the wrong person to ask about about that. But I, I, I do agree with you that I think that the collective behaviors are extremely important. The, the work that I'm most familiar with is so very simple, and they're focusing on things like simply the adhesion of protocells into clumps. Yeah. And that by doing that, they exhibit different kinds of behaviors. So it's very, very primitive, but it's certainly on people's minds. I guess when I was involved, I was involved in a research, this, this, this uh, big uh, research project, for four years, uh, funded by the EU on programmable artificial cell evolution, or PACE, and there was a part of that project devoted to the the uh, you know collections of cells, and it always struck me as a, sort of the poor sister in the group because it was relatively hypothetical still to me, and I think both of them, they, they got much less money, for example, than everyone else. Yeah, well, those those of us who work up on the modeling of embryogenesis level tend to get no money, so <laughs> so we're 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 used to that. Yeah, this is the algorithms and blues component that people have complained about in previous lives. So, Bruce, do you have any do you have any final questions for Mark? None at all. I'm just looking forward to meeting you at some point. And Mark, if you're in the uh, Bay Area. In a couple of weeks, I'll be back from London. I don't know how long you have have um, down here, but it'd be good to get together if possible. Yeah. Okay. If you can, uh, maybe, can you just shoot me an email? I'm I'll be down there on. Uh, there's an event in Palo Alto, Future Salon. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'll find out when I go down there on the 20th. And so I'll be down there that day, and then uh, doing some things in the Bay Area that weekend.
Okay, okay, I'll probably be back on the 23rd. I might miss you, but yeah, I've spoken at future salons. They're they're quite uh, good events. Okay, great, good. Okay, Mark, I've got one more question. Uh, the uh, uh, I, I I've read a couple of chapters in uh, the Protocells book so far, and uh, I gather that a lot of it is kind of you support the cells and hope that you can get them to uh, become self-supporting in some way. Okay? Okay. Uh, you know, you sort of create a microenvironment that uh, sort of makes up for the lack of the cell being, uh, how shall you say, uh, uh, able to get along on its own. Okay, this sounds like what you're, what you're describing sounds to, like it mainly describes one particular approach which is this microfluidic complementation approach? Is that what you right, have in mind? Right, right. That's, okay. that's, that's as far as I've gotten in the book. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, what I, uh, I've been batting an idea around and uh, did a little publication on it, that uh, if, you, if you look at the origin of life, from the point of view of the origin of life, that what an organism has to reach a state of being able to do uh, involves acts of what I call perception. And these perceptual acts are basically of three types. Uh, they're uh, find something to eat, recognize it and eat it, uh, avoid being eaten, and uh, find a mate. And all three of those involve acts of perception. Now, uh, I don't recall, but is there anything on perception in in the uh, protocell book? Good question. I don't think there is off the top of my head. And I think that's an omission. Um, I don't think, let me just think, I don't think there is. This work that I, I, I alluded to the fact that at the last Artificial Life Conference, there was a, there was a few, there were a few presentations in Wet Artificial Life, and one of them won the award for the most interesting work. That bit of work was on a certain kind of protocells. These certainly were not alive, but they did engage in a kind of perception they could sense. They had a kind of primitive chemotactic, chemotaxis. Uh -huh. They could sense the chemical gradient and then move on the basis of that chemical gradient. This yeah, that's cer certainly an excellent chem uh, chemotaxis is an excellent prototype. Yeah, so that's, so that's just to say that I think people are aware that, that uh, um, perceptual acts are fundamental in life. And I think, in fact, it's connected with, I think the protocell book, if it doesn't bring this up, I think this is an omission. And uh, what the protocell book focuses on is, as you were saying, these self-supporting or autonomously sort of creating and self-sustaining and self-assembling uh, cell-like structures, you know, that have a metabolism and everything and can reproduce themselves and, and so potentially evolve. But, but, it, but that doesn't address the question, you know, what are those entities doing? Like, do they have, are they striving for something? Are they, as you put it, are they agents? You know, are they trying to accomplish something? Do they have goals of their own? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could put it that way. <laughs> I try not to use such strong language, but philosophically yeah. strong language. But yeah. uh, I guess what I'm saying, insofar as protocells are an approach to uh, solving, let's say, a, an origin of life as opposed to, quote, the origin of life, Right. Uh, 
we may have to solve the same problems with them, and that is how do we get from a system that's not perceiving to one that is perceiving. Yep, I, I agree with you. So this one little bit of work that I was alluding to might, you, you might find interesting. It's, it was published in JAX in the last year at some point, or at least the first the preliminary publication was. Okay, I, I sent you a couple email messages while you were talking. Maybe you could send me a reference for it. Yep, yep. You'll have my email address there. Great. Terrific. Okay. Well, Mark, I think what you found is that when you come on Biota Live, you, uh, you know, you leave with more questions in some regard than you than you give answers. And I'd certainly welcome you to appear on a future Biota Live when we can discuss one of the the many questions that have been raised through our discussion this evening. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to to chat with you. I enjoy talking with you, Bruce and Dick, too, and I look forward to interacting with you both in the future. And um, Tom, I'm always happy to to be here on um, biota.org. I'm really glad that you're doing this. I think it's uh, appreciated by many people. I did my graduate work in Oregon, by the way. I regard it as the most beautiful state in the uh, U.S. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Friday, February 20th at 8 p.m. Pacific, we will have outstanding questions raised from uh, this show and previous shows, and maybe uh, if Dick can call in for that show we'll uh, we'll talk more on some of the topics raised so i'd like to thank you all for uh, for calling in and participating and thanks for the folks listening okay good talking to you good talk. thank you good night